0: Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So chapter 18 begins another, is really an answer to another argument, and that argument is that God is punishing the wrong people. The argument is that God isn't really just, his ways are not fair, and part of that's because one thing that God has repeatedly said in his last answer was he's pointed out how there's been a history of rebellion. He's, he's, been not, he's been pointing out that this isn't new. It's not like God just lost patience all of a sudden. There's been a history of rebellion. It's gotten worse and worse. You know, the kings have not obeyed by and large. And he's gone over the history. And he gave that really stark, uh, kind of vulgar and shocking uh, illustration in which he talked about a, an adulteress. Who is actually a, prostit- a reverse prostitute who actually pays other men to sleep with them and kind of goes through that whole thing to kind of show the depth of the problem that exists well because he's going back to the history then one of the arguments apparently that comes up is well why are we being punished for what our ancestors did it's not our fault which conveniently of course forgets that they themselves are engaged in really horrific things already um it's not like god is really punishing them for what they did in the past he's simply showing a pattern but that is one of the arguments and so that is what he's going to address here in chapter 18. so this is what he says the word of the lord came to me what do you mean what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of israel the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge so let me ask you god says to them what do you mean by this parable what do you think that parable means if you're trying to if you try to break that down, if this is what people are saying in Israel, they're saying, well, the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What is the point of that parable?
1: That they're suffering because the actions of their parents. Exactly.
0: The parents eat the sour grapes, but it's the children who have the consequences. Right. And they're like, how stupid is that? God is punishing us because of what our parents did. Right. That's not really fair. Um, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. So he's just making it really clear. Yeah, if you die, you're not dying for your parents' sins. Your teeth are not set on edge because your parents ate sour grapes. Your teeth are set on edge because you've been eating sour grapes, to, to put it in their vernacular. And he goes on to expand on this in case there's any question. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between the two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. I think it's interesting that he goes through this list, right? He could have just said... Suppose there's a righteous man who does what is right and just. The problem in this current context is if that's all God says, you know that what everybody in Israel is doing is justifying their own actions. So they would look and say, well, I am basically righteous and just. I haven't really done anything wrong. So I think that's why God has Ezekiel go through a list. Because as he goes through the list, I think the idea is that everybody in Israel hears that list and finds something there that they're guilty of. And so he goes through that and he says, so let's say you have someone, though, who's like that. He says that man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and the needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends an interest and takes a profit. Will such a man live? He will not, right? So the dad is righteous. Of course he'll live. The son is violent. Is he going to live because the dad was righteous? No, it's not, it's not like that. It doesn't work that way either. Because he has done all these detestable things, he is to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Then God goes on. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor and takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my laws and follows his decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live, but his father will die for his own sin because he practiced of his brother and did what was wrong among his people. So, bottom line. You do what's right, you'll be fine, you don't, you won't. God's just trying to be really clear because there's this whole conception, I think, that you sin or your your, your father's sins are gonna cause you to be judged at this time in Israel. And so he's making a point, that's not that way, I'm not unfair like that. But then it's like, and you know how this is, when you're arguing with an authority, and in this case, God is the authority, he's hard to argue with, but when you're arguing about something you don't think is fair, You'll flip your argument on a dime. You'll just, you'll, just, you'll just take a left turn if it fits better. So now God says, you say that I'm unfair because I do this. Let me tell you, I don't do this, so I'm not unfair. So now he says there's some people whose argument is going to be, well, maybe it would be more fair. <laughs> maybe you should be judging the sons for their father's sin. So maybe that's what's unfair, even though they probably don't really want that. Again, it's just all the justification of why they shouldn't be judged. And that's what the next thing he says. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of, this, of his father? And so God goes on. Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. One second. Uh, let's see. Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. God is being as clear as he can be. Just laying it out there very clearly. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. So in the midst of all this, God even goes further. He's like, yeah, you're going to be judged for your own sins because what? I still allow room for repentance. So if you repent of what you've done, then you'll live. Also, other people may look at you and say, well, they're wicked and they didn't get judged. They may not see the repentance, but I'll see it. So understand that's also part of this equation. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous things they have done, they will live. So there's room for repentance individually. doesn't matter what your dad did. doesn't matter what your son does. It's about you and your, your walk and your position and your righteousness with God. And then God says this, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? I love this verse. I think it tells us about who God is. And I think it's really important. And I think in the context, it's even more important, of course. And it and it makes it, it kind of speaks directly to the point. And the point is this. When people are arguing that God is unjust and he's punishing people who don't deserve to be punished, what they're really saying is that God takes some sort of delight in the punishment itself, that he likes judging people, that God just wants to do it. So he's eager to do it. So he's looking for excuses. Well, your parents were bad, so that's why I'm going to do it. I don't know about the rest of you parents but as a parent sometimes my kids are this way right they think you just want to mess up my life you just want to make things harder for me and it's a hard thing to help them sometimes at those moments understand actually no actually I'd much rather go the other way I would I would love to find an excuse give me an excuse give me a reason to not discipline you give me a reason to not enact correction or punishment and so that's what so God says to them very clearly I don't take delight even in the death of the wicked, which I think is so important. I, I think, again, there's a certain self-righteousness in us that, that I, it's, it's one thing to, to rejoice in justice. That is a good thing. It is good to recognize you know, that, that people are held accountable and there's a, there's a relief in that and there's a, a rightness in that. And so that's okay that we rejoice in that. But at the same time, sometimes it goes further than that. And sometimes in our own self-righteousness, when we see somebody fall, you know, we see a, a Christian leader or a politician or a celebrity or somebody who has a lot of good stuff in their lives and we see them fall <laughs> and we see them sort of get theirs, sometimes there's a glee in that. We're kind of like, yeah, it's about time. And I think God is saying that even he himself doesn't take glee in that, even in the wicked, even in the death of the wicked, he doesn't rejoice. He, he rejoices in justice, he rejoices in accountability, but he would rather that the wicked turn and repent and live. This reminds me of Jonah, right? So in the story of Jonah, the reason Jonah did not want to prophesy to the Ninevites was because he was afraid they might repent, and he knew that if they repented, God would spare them, and he didn't want God to spare them. So from Jonah's perspective, he did not want the wicked to repent and live. He wanted the wicked to die, but God wanted the wicked to repent and live, which is why he sent Jonah. And so I think it's an important thing to understand about God, that as he looks at the world, and he looks at everything, yes, he will judge, he will bring justice to bear, he will judge the wicked for their wickedness, and the righteous for their righteousness, but his desire is that everybody would repent, do the right thing, and live. He doesn't desire even for the wicked to die. There's no glee in that for him. And I think that's uh, kind of an important statement about who he is, and if and he's going to make it again in just a couple verses and be even more clear about it in case, in case it doesn't seem clear enough here. But he goes on. If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will Because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of and because of the sins they have committed, they will die. So bottom line... Do the right thing, you live. Don't do the right thing, you die. That's that's what he's telling them. You're not being judged because of someone else's sins. It's for you. It's your you're accountable for what you've done. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. So here it is. God's answered their specific accusations of unfairness and injustice. And now it just, again, when you're just in the process of justifying yourself and you're losing an argument, a lot of times you just fall back to, well, you're just wrong. You know, there, he's he's answered their arguments but they're still just like yeah but you're just not just we just know that's the case you're just not just the way of the lord is not just here you israelites is my way unjust or is it not your ways that are unjust again he's just bringing it back around he's like you're blaming me for the judgment upon you but isn't in fact my judgment upon you because because of you because of the problems that you have because you're not just if a righteous person turns from the righteousness and commits sin they will die for it because of the sin they have committed, they will die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. God is saying it over and over. He's trying to keep it as simple as he can. It's just like, it's just this is how it is. Just, just do the right thing. Because they consider all the offenses they have committed and turn away from them, that person will surely live. They will not die. Yet the Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? He repeats that. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. You don't like the judgment that's coming? Quit making excuses. Quit blaming your ancestors. Quit blaming me. There is an answer here. The answer is repent. The answer is turn away from it. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord, repent and live. A couple of really beautiful things in here. One is just that statement, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, repent and live. There's also this reference to a new heart and a new spirit, which Paul directly connects um, to the the salvation, to what the Messiah brings. That That he changes our very heart and our very spirit, who we are then that, that that he makes us righteous and fit for the kingdom of heaven and there isn't I, I i would say irony except i don't think it's an irony i think it's an intentional sort of expansion of what we're seeing here in this chapter all the way through this chapter god is talking about how he's fair and because he's fair he's not going to judge people he's not going to judge people's sin because of the sins of their ancestors and yet what happens at the cross with the messiah is that we are given the righteousness because jesus who is sinless is, is punished for our sins. There is, a, there is a tension in that, right? There's this whole point of, well, why is he being judged for our sins? And the truth is he's doing it voluntarily. He's doing it because he is God and he has chosen that this is the plan. This is how it works. And so I think in the midst of all this accountability, there's this reference, this, this explanation of a new heart and a new spirit. It's a little bit of a, a glimmer, a little bit of a hint, or at least it's a backwards hint. We can look back and see it to remind us that what in fact happened is that Jesus did take upon himself our sins in a way that he never asked us to take our, our parents' sins on us or our kids' sins on us, that even our own sins as we repent can be placed upon Jesus and taken away on our behalf. And then you get to that verse which says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. And that explains why. You know, why would God do this? Well, because even the wicked, he wants to see them live. And so he's provided a way for even the wicked to live because he doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone. So I think it's pretty cool the way all that, all that, that whole chapter all kind of comes to pass that way. Before we go on to Ezekiel 19, any thoughts, comments about that chapter?
1: I'm, I'm a little confused. Like about what you just said, because it seemed like before too in either Ezekiel or Jeremiah it said about how God like in one day that they will have a new spirit and have new hearts um I'm pretty sure I don't think I'm confusing that with like Hebrews or something and I don't know just like how all that fits together is it just because it's like like such a bigger idea I guess that it like covers at all because I mean they can't really um where is it I mean they can't really get a new heart and a new spirit for themselves like like how they do in the New Testament but I mean I guess they can in a sense.
0: Yeah I think in their in their context Right. I like before think Jesus. That, I think it is prophetic about the Messiah. But yes, in their context, if they repent of their sins, God can also renew them to such a degree that they can then be renewed. They can follow his ways. Their sins will not be held accountable to him. So I think that, I think it is, it's one of those things that's both true where they are, and then even more largely true in the Messiah. But I also suspect it's one of those things which maybe wasn't as clear to them how that could be you know, because it makes more sense in the, in the span of the Messiah, but for them in their context, the point is, I want you to live. All you have to do is repent and I'll, I'll make that happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that is like the, the message, like basically of the whole Bible.
0: (laughs) True. (laughs) True. Any other thoughts? Oh, here comes Jolene.
1: Let's all scare her when she comes on. You can all say boom.
0: Um, yeah, that'll scare her. <laughs> I'm just waiting for her audio to connect. Let's see if it does. Then we'll jump into 19. Hello, Jolene. Can you hear us? <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, she's still trying to connect. We'll go ahead and, and press on and. Uh, uh we're on chapter so coming into chapter 19 so in chapter 19 he says take up a lament concerning the princes of israel and say okay so a couple of things about chapter 19 it's different it's different from all of the other chapters of ezekiel but it's not different from something that we're going to read a little bit later which is a book called lamentations written by jeremiah but this is a this is a lament and it's told to us that it's a lament and a lament is a very specific form of, of poetry and writing in the Hebrew writings. We see some of them in the Psalms. We've actually seen some laments in the Psalms. And laments are intended to be laments. And, it's, and I say that, that sounds obvious, but here's the reason I think that's important. A lament is not intended to be sort of a sneaky way to preach hope. A lament is a lament. A lament is an opportunity to grieve. It's an opportunity to say, this is not right, and I don't like this. It's some of the psalms that are hard for us because they don't turn the corner. There are some Mm -hmm. psalms which are just sad, and you get to the end, and you're like, wow, where's the hope? Well, there isn't, (laughs) not in that psalm. And it's interesting because at this moment in Ezekiel, it's actually really important, and he's even going to say at the end. Well, I'll I'll give you the spoiler now, and we'll bring it up again when we get there. At the end of this lament, he's going to say, this is a lament and it should be used as a lament, which is a weird thing to say, except that I think what Ezekiel is trying to say is, this is the time for mourning. And and if you remember the context Ezekiel and Jeremiah are in is what they are doing is they are bucking the general consensus and the general wisdom of all the prophets around them that everything's gonna be okay. And and it's amazing, even at this late date, at this moment in the history of Israel, when Israel's already been, been, there've been three waves of exiles and things do not look good, and they're going to get worse. It's amazing that the prophets are still sticking to this story that everything's going to be okay. We're going to be rescued. The the exiles are going to come back from Babylon. It's really no big deal. Don't believe all the doom and gloom. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah keep trying to say to them, we're sorry, but that's wrong. (laughs) It's not going to get better. It's only going to get better once we're in Babylon. That's it, believe it or not but it's not going to get better here. And we're not going to be back here for a long time. And so I think by Ezekiel putting this lament in here, he's doing a couple of things all at once. One of the things he's doing is saying, this is not a time for false hope and false optimism about things that aren't going to happen. There's a reason for hope. It's always in God, but it's not in us coming back to Jerusalem right now. So he's saying, this is a time for lament. This is a time for mourning. It would be like if you went to a funeral <laughs> for somebody, and if the, the pastor didn't just talk about the, 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 the hope of the resurrection in the future, but if the pastor literally started saying, I don't think that, that Joe is actually dead. I think he's just resting in this coffin. And before we leave this funeral, he's going to get up and, and he's going to walk around and we're going to discover he wasn't dead after all. And you can imagine that a member of the family might stand up and say, would you shut up? That is not not what's going to happen. He's dead. We're here to grieve that he's dead. We're here to recognize he's dead. What you're preaching is not helping anybody or anything at all. And that's how I think Ezekiel is. He's like, I'm here to preach a eulogy about Israel. And you guys keep telling me Israel's not dead yet. And I keep saying it's dead. And and yes, there's hope to be preached by Jeremiah, there's hope to be preached by Ezekiel, the remnant's going to come. We've already seen some of that hope preached, but you can't even begin to get to that hope until you've accepted the death, right? The resurrection of Israel won't mean anything if Israel isn't even dead. And so I think that's, that's why the lament is here. So that's one thing he's doing. Second thing he's doing is he calls this a lament concerning the princes of Israel. And that phrase, princes of Israel, is interesting for two reasons. One is he says Israel, not just Judah or Jerusalem. So he is called he's about to talk specifically about the last two or three kings of Israel um, and how they've really messed up (laughs) and, and how terrible things are because of that. And as he of Judah, and as he does, he's gonna say this is Israel, because this is all Israel is right now, is Judah and Jerusalem. Second thing is he uses the phrase princes. Instead of kings, I'm not exactly sure why he does that, but it is interesting to me that possibly what he's doing is reminding people who is the true king of Israel. Well, God is. God is the true king. These were just princes, and so we can lament the princes. We're not lamenting the king. The king is alive and well, but we're going to lament these princes of Israel. Um, In a in a few weeks. We're going to get to the book of Lamentations, which is Jeremiah's book of Lament. It's his eulogy. It's his grieving over Jerusalem. We'll get there. Let's see. The other thing that does happen in this lament is it does answer another objection. So another objection that people have is all the, you know, you, Ezekiel and Jeremiah keep talking about us being judged. That can't happen because God has promised as long as there is a Davidic ruler on the throne he made a covenant with David. He said there would be a Davidic ruler on the throne forever. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah are telling us we're going to be, that, that lineage is going to be destroyed. And if that happens, then there's no way. So God would be unfaithful. And by doing this eulogy of the princes, one of the things that we'll see as a message in the lament is that, hey, yeah, the Davidic line is over for now. He does tell us it will pick up again at some point, but he is saying you can't count on that being your salvation now because it's over. It's suspended. The the lineage of David's family being kings over Judah is suspended, because there is no Judah and there is no Israel. It's dead. So that's the other thing that happens in this lamentation. So let's go ahead and read it. Oh, and finally, the other thing he does is he shows that, again, it goes back to this idea that God doesn't delight even in the death of the wicked, because Ezekiel's speaking for God here as well as him for himself, and what this lamentation is, is it's not about judgment. This lamentation is about grief over the judgment. So it's showing us that God can both judge them and grieve over what it means. He can grieve over the loss of the princes. He can grieve over the loss of Israel. This was a really important lesson for me as a parent. And I've talked about it before, so I won't go into detail. But this is a really important lesson for me as a parent to realize that I could enact discipline on my kids and still grieve the result of that discipline. I used to think if I grieved the result of the discipline, then it meant that I couldn't discipline them because how could I I be doing something that caused me grief? And I realized that wasn't true. And although my kids rarely believe it, it's actually, I think, helpful for them to know that I can both sympathize with their loss of privileges and whatever it is they're losing in in the discipline at the same time that I think the discipline is appropriate. I can do both at once. And if you think about it throughout scripture, God does that all the time that he both enacts judgment and grieves over it at the same time. And so I think that's the other thing we see happening here in the Lamentations is it's a moment for Ezekiel and God to simply grieve over what's happening. All right, so here we go. What a lioness was your mother among the lions? I think the mother here is Israel, right? So that might be the other reason they're called princes is because he's thinking of Israel as like the leader, the the mother of these kings. What a lioness was your mother among the lions. She lay down among them and reared her cubs. She brought up one of her cubs and he became a strong lion. He learned to tear the prey and he became a man-eater. The nations heard about them and he was trapped in their pit. I think this is a reference to Jehoahaz. I won't go back and remind you all, but he had this very short, but very brutal reign. He did become kind of a man-eater. He was just terrifying, but it was very short. It was a few months. They led him with hooks to the land of Egypt. And this is correct king jehoahaz of judah was taken prisoner uh, and taken to egypt in 609 bc after just three months of reigning, when she saw she the lioness israel when she saw her hope unfulfilled her expectation gone she took another of her cubs and made him a strong lion he prowled among the lions for he was now a strong lion he learned to tear the prey and he became a man-eater he broke down their strongholds and devastated their towns and the land and all who were in it were terrified by his roaring. So after Jehoahaz, we had Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim did have a, a, a bark, right? He was more bark than bite, but he did kind of roar and he seemed really powerful. And it seemed like he was going to be just ferocious. But when he roared against Babylon, that was kind of that. Babylon just took him out. And this is what it says. Then the nations came against him, those from regions about. They spread their net for him and he was trapped in their pit. And with hooks, they pulled him into a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They put him in prison. So his roar was heard no longer on the mountains of Israel. And this is true as well. Jehoiakim was taken prisoner to Babylon in 597 BC, that second wave. He never returned to Israel. So when it says his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel, I think that's the idea. He never came back. Goes on. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard planted by the water. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant water. Its branches were strong, fit for a ruler's scepter. It towered high above the thick foliage, conspicuous for its height and for its many branches. But it was uprooted in fury and thrown to the ground. The east wind made it shrivel. It was stripped of its fruit, and its strong branches withered, and fire consumed them all. I think we have kind of this picture of the the flowering vineyard, the, the really fruitful vineyard during the times of David and Solomon, and these are the kings that are the strong branches. And then it's kind of showing us how far we've come and we have Jehoiakim, and we have Jehoahaz. And and these are very weak branches. They, They become fruitless and they become dried up and they become scattered to the winds. And now it is planted in the desert in a dry and thirsty land. Fire spread from one of its main branches and consumed its fruit. So it even says one of the branches that, which I think would be here, one of the princes, one of the branches here That fire came from it, caused the destruction of Israel. And it could be any of them, but this could be Zedekiah. This could be talking about how the ultimate end is Zedekiah's unwillingness to repent, his unwillingness to accept the judgment of God, and he even rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, which, as we've talked about before, as odd as that sounds, that's actually something God holds him accountable for. He's like, you should have stayed true to your oath, to your surrender to Babylon, but you didn't. And when he rebels, that's when we end up with this final siege of Jerusalem, leading to the destruction of the temple. And so that could be the the branch that consumes Israel itself. And then he says this no strong branch is left on it. I feel like. Verse 14. Yeah, tell me if I'm missing a verse because I'm thinking of something, but maybe it's in a later chapter. So it says, No strong branch is left on it fit for a ruler's scepter. Does it say right after that this is a lament? Yeah. Okay. Yes. There's another verse that I in my head I, had, I <clears throat> wanted to hear. It's going to come up later. So never mind. Uh, we'll get to the other, r- other thing here. But he says, No strong branches left on it fit for a ruler's scepter. In other words, the lineage of David is gone. This is it. There, there's there's no more lineage of David and this is where I thought he had a verse talking about in the future he'd have one but that's coming up in a later chapter so for this chapter it's just the lament the hope isn't given it's just the lament the kings are gone the princes are gone the lineage of David is gone there's no more branches that can hold a scepter they're too weak they're too frail they're too corrupt and they're all destroyed and that's why he says this is a lament and is to be used as a lament do not turn this lament into anything else just let it be a lament Let us just grieve together about where we are. And of course, the problem is that the the prophets in Jerusalem and the king and Zedekiah in Jerusalem, they don't wanna lament because a lament means you've lost. (laughs) A lament means there's something to grieve. They don't want it. They don't wanna believe this. And so this is part of Ezekiel's point. This is the time for mourning. This is the time to grieve because mourning and grieving might lead to repentance. But if you don't accept that we are where we are, then even that isn't going to happen. So that's the end of chapter 19. Any comments before we go on?
1: That just makes me think the last one just makes me think like Sela, like it's a Sela. Like yeah. stop and think about this. Think about
0: that, yes. And when you do, lament. It's good. All right, Ezekiel 20. This one is very long, I think. All right, here we go. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day, some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord, and they sat down in front of me. So this is two years in Ezekiel's prophecies now. So he came in this sort of last batch of exiles before the actual destruction, and he came and he met with the Lord and, and he had that first vision of the glory of God coming to him. And this is two years later. About a year earlier, so so a year after that first vision, he had the vision in chapter eight where he, the elders are come to him. It starts almost the same way. Some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord. And so they come to Ezekiel to ask him questions. He has this vision about Jerusalem. and what he comes back and tells the elders is, don't even inquire of God because you don't really want to know what God thinks. You're just trying to, you just, you're still invested in your idols, so God's not going to help you. When you're done investing in your idols, come back and I'll tell you what to do. Well, so here we are a year after that. The elders come inquire of the Lord. And apparently, nothing's changed. Apparently, they're still pursuing their idols as much as they're pursuing, uh, you know, God's words from Ezekiel. Because this is what he says. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Have you come to inquire of me? As surely as I live, I will not let you inquire of me, declares the sovereign Lord. Will you judge them? He says to Ezekiel, will you judge them, son of man? Then confront them with the detestable practices of their ancestors and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. We're about to get one of these history moments. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into the land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful in all lands. And I said to them, each of you, get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me, and they would not listen to me. And they did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived, and in whose sight I had revealed myself to the Israelites. Therefore, I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws, by which the person who obeys them will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us, so they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy." Yet the people of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness, they did not follow my decrees but rejected my laws by which the person who obeys them will live, and they utterly desecrated my Sabbaths. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and destroy them in the wilderness. But for the sake of my name I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations and whose side I brought them out. And with uplifted hand I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land I had given them a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands, because they had rejected my laws and did not follow my decrees and desecrated my sabbaths, for their hearts were devoted to their idols. Yet I looked on them with pity, and I did not destroy them or put an end to them in the wilderness. I said to their children in the wilderness, do not follow the statutes of your parents or keep their laws or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be assigned between us. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not follow my decrees. They were not careful to keep my Of which I said, the person who obeys them all will live by them. And they desecrated my Sabbaths. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand. And for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned in the eyes of the nations and whose sight I had brought them out. Also, with uplifted hand, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would disperse them among the nations and scatter them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my laws, but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths, and their eyes lusted after their parents' idols. So I gave them other statutes that were that were not good and laws through which they could not live. I defiled them through the gifts, the sacrifice of every firstborn, that I might fill them with horror, so that I would know, so that they would know, that I am the Lord. Yeah you see a lot of repetition in there and that's because god is pointing out a pattern and the pattern is both god's long suffering and israel's stubbornness and the pattern is they're in egypt and they start worshiping the idols of egypt and god says don't do that or i'm just gonna put an end to you in egypt but they don't listen to him they go ahead and they seek idols and they rebel from god but then god says you know what i want people to know the kind of god i am and i don't want all these other nations to be confused so i'm going to rescue them anyway so he rescues him anyway and brings him out into the wilderness. And he says, now we're starting over. Clean slate. Here's some laws. Do what I tell you. It's all for your good. It's all so you'll live. But then they rebel. God says, I'm going to wipe you out. But then he says, but I don't want to do that because I want the other nations to know who I really am. The kind of God I am. So we're just going to do a clean slate. So he tells the kids, hey, you guys get to start with a clean slate. Your, your parents messed up, but you come along. And they, he says, here's the laws. And they say, nope, we don't want it. <laughs> they rebel. So we have this pattern of God, God telling them what they needed to live. They rebel. He relents. They don't repent. And it goes over and over and over. And the point is that eventually it comes to this place here at the end of this paragraph where they're in Canaan, where they're, they are a nation. History repeats this cycle over and over and over. He's only giving a few sort of exemplary moments, but it's the same cycle throughout. And now he says to them, there came a point where I said, you know what, you don't really want my advice. You don't want my laws. I'm telling you these laws will help you live. You keep saying we'd rather worship other gods. So you know what? I said, okay. I said, you don't want my advice. Go ahead. Take what you want. Worship the gods you want. Do the things you want. I'm going to stand back and I'm going to let it happen. And the reason he's telling this pattern of this story is because that's essentially what he's telling the elders right now. He's saying, look at where you are in this pattern. You have been rebellious, right? And I have said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you all go. I'm going to scatter you among other nations. But God says, but there's an opportunity here. You can repent and we can get a clean slate and start again, or you can keep refusing to listen to me. And if you're gonna do that, I'm gonna quit talking. I'm not going to tell you anything because you're still seeking your idols. When you're done seeking your idols, I'll be here. That's essentially the point he's going to make as he goes on. And this is what he says to Ezekiel along, it, along those lines. Therefore, of um, man, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In this also your ancestors blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me. When I had brought them into the land, I had sworn to give them, and they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, but there they offered their sacrifices, made offerings that aroused my anger, presented their fragrant incense, and poured out their drink offerings. And I said to them, what is this high place you go to? It is called Bama to this day. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, will you defile yourselves the way your ancestors did and lust after their vile images when you offer your gifts, the sacrifice of your children in the fire?" You continue to defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. Am I to let you inquire of me, you Israelites? As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will not let you inquire of me. I have Nothing to say to you. You don't want my advice. Anything I would say to you, I've said before. And I'll say it again, but it's all the same. And the advice is, leave your idols alone come back to me. Anything else, we're not talking about. There's nothing else to discuss. And so they're still apparently unwilling to do that. You say... We want to be like the nations, like the people of the world who serve wood and stone. So this is amazing, right? When put in this way, it's so silly. It's so dumb. Here they are talking to God of the universe, the creator of all wood and all stone. And God says, I just want you to worship me and leave them alone. And they say, but we want to be like other nations who worship wood and stone. And you just think, kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. What is that? You know, how silly is that? And and yet that's what they're doing. And he says, but then he goes on and he says this, but what you have in mind will never happen. And this is the other part we see in that cycle, that even though they keep telling God they really don't want him and they want idols, what we also see is that God really never allows that to happen. Even though he keeps giving them kind of enough rope to hang themselves with, he also keeps rescuing them from actually hanging themselves entirely. And that's kind of what he's saying here. You say you wanna be like the other nations, that's fine. I'm not gonna give you advice you don't want, but just know I'm also not really gonna let that happen. I'm not going to let you become just like the other nations. What I'm going to do is I'm going to continue to make it really difficult for you to worship foreign idols, to worship other gods. I'm going to keep showing you when you do that there's no blessing there, that they can't protect you. Yes, Meredith, I see your hand.
1: Oh, well, I was going to say too, like, kind of like along with that, I noticed when it was like going through like the history thing, I mean, those happen a lot in the Bible, but it seems like this one has like a lot more of the, but I need to protect my name and then, um, and show like who God is like, just not just for you, for the other nations. And he has been doing that a lot too, just like, um, recently and with like all the other prophecies, which is just something that he doesn't do. It doesn't seem like as much like in the other times that he really goes through that.
0: For sure. And he's being a lot more clear, even with the judgments, even with Babylon, even with Nebuchadnezzar, even saying settle in and see Nebuchadnezzar as my judgment. He's being even more and more clear that he is working with all the nations, you know, that he always has been. So I think you're right. He is making an extra point about how all this is kind of affects the entire world in a sense. I think that's a good point. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will reign over you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outstretched wrath without poured wrath. So I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to keep reigning over you even when you run away. I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you've been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and without poured wrath. I will bring you into the wilderness of the nations and there face to face, I will execute judgment upon you. As I judged your ancestors in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will judge you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will take note of you as you pass under my rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge you of those who revolt and rebel against me. Although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, yet they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Go, serve your idols, every one of you. So (laughs) weird thing to say, but again, it's that whole idea of, I know you're going to do what you're going to do, right? I keep giving you advice. I keep telling you not to do it. And although I'm not abandoning you, he's not losing patience with him in that sense, where he's just like, whatever, you're going to do what you want. But he is in one sense saying, you keep coming to me for help, but you don't want my help. So until you really want it, just go serve your idols, get help from them, see what they can give you. When you're actually done playing around and you actually want my help, leave your idols, come back, I'll be here. But in the meantime, go serve your idols, all of you, just go for it. But afterward, he says, you will surely listen to me, because that's what happens when you serve your idols, they will not help you. You will surely listen to me and no longer profane my holy name with your gifts and idols. For on my holy mountain, the high mountain of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord, there in the land of all the people, there in the land, all the people of Israel will serve me, and there I will accept them. There I will require your offerings and your choice gifts, along with all your holy sacrifices. I will accept you as a fragrant incense when I bring you out from the nations and gather you from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will be proved holy through you in the sight of the nations. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, land I had sworn with uplifted hand to give your ancestors then you will remember your conduct and all the actions by which you've defiled yourselves and you will loathe yourselves for all the evil you have done you will know that i am the lord when i deal with you for my name's sake and not according to your evil ways and your corrupt practices you people of israel declares the sovereign lord so there is some hope here but i don't know if they can hear the hope because there's so much that has to do with them letting go of their idols but the hope is we will be back in israel at some point that is going to happen the, the uh, rest of chapter 20, interestingly enough, verses 45 through 49, in the original Hebrew text in the Hebrew Bible, those are actually the beginning of chapter 21. I don't know why we have adjusted that uh, or who adjusted that. It may have been in the Septuagint and the Greek translation. I'm not sure when it happened, but it actually makes a whole lot more sense at the beginning of 21. So we're gonna pretend we've concluded chapter 20 here. Does anybody have any questions about chapter 20 before we move on to chapter 21? Or comments or thoughts. Okay, so here we go. Chapter 20 verses 45 through 39, otherwise known as chapter 21. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the south. Now, Ezekiel is in the north, Babylon. So towards the south means Jerusalem. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the south. Preach against the south and prophesy against the forest of the south land. Say to the southern forest, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am about to set fire to you and it will consume all your trees, both green and dry. The blazing flame will not be quenched and every face from south to north will be scorched by it. Everyone will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it it will not be quenched. Then I said, sovereign Lord, they are saying of me, isn't he just telling parables? This, I love this because this goes back to what Charlie said. The strength of Ezekiel is that he gives all these demonstrations and illustrations and these parables and these, this, this performance art to show them. And that is the strength, but every strength can be, can be used by someone as an excuse to not listen. So when it comes to Ezekiel, they're like, oh, that's, a, that's crazy Zeke. He just tells stories. He just tells parables. He likes to lay on his side and he likes to cook food over a fire and he likes to pretend he's in exile. That's just Zeke, right? They're just like, we're going to ignore him because he's just telling parables. Of course, the irony of it is that <sighs> at this very moment, there was nothing, par- I mean, he talks about it being like a forest, but this was a really clear story, wasn't it? I mean, can you really hear him prophesying against the South and say, I don't understand what Ezekiel's saying. He's talking about forests burning in the south. I think if you were paying attention at all, you know what he's saying. He's saying we're going to be judged and we're going to be destroyed. But by pushing it off as just parables, they're not listening. And that's what Ezekiel's complaining to God. He's like, "God, maybe we need to change our approach." <laughs> yes. I don't know what it is, but they're just they're just like, "Ah, he's just telling parables." And so in your scripture, what starts chapter 21, I think it's just a continuation of this discussion uh jolene i see your hand
1: and i actually love that he uh, is you know honest enough with god that he can say this is what the people are telling me <laughs>
0: <Yep>. <laughs> they're complaining about this god yeah for sure i think mm-hmm. jeremiah like a lot of the prophets they have a huge amount of respect for god obviously unreverence and awe and fear and i mean ezekiel has seen the glory of god and yet they do also have this comfort and confidence to go to god when they have a concern a complaint or a question and i think that's i think that's pretty cool i think some of that is the i think we all have that but i think for the prophets of the old testament that's some of the compensation of their work right it's so hard That sometimes they have nobody. And I think the fact that they have God in this kind of ability to interchange with him this way, I think that's part of the blessing, that's part of the compensation for the hard life they live. Ezekiel 21. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man, set your face against Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuary. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to her, This is the what the Lord says. And I love this. It's like Ezekiel's like, I'm telling a lot of parables, and God's like, All right, let's be clear. Let's just, let's just lay it out. Okay. They want a parable. Let's give them a parable about a sword, but they will not miss this. They can't miss this. This is about as clear as you can get. So here we go. This is what the Lord says. I am against you. How's that for a nice, simple, obvious (laughs) statement, right? (laughs) They can't take that and go, I wonder what God means by that. No, this is really clear. I am against you. I will draw my sword from its sheath and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Clearly, that's what he meant by the green and the dry, right? He's just being really clear here about this. I will draw my sword from its sheath and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Because I'm going to cut off the righteous and the wicked, my sword will be unsheathed against everyone from south to north. Then all people will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword from its sheath. It will not return again. The idea being it's not going to return until I'm done. Right. I'm not pulling the sword out to make a threat. I'm pulling the sword out and I used to. Don't throw me in church prison. I used to play Dungeons and Dragons. I actually don't think that's an evil thing, but I grew up in a church that did. So I used to play Dungeons and Dragons. And I remember one of my characters had a sword, which was magically enchanted. And that you couldn't, once you pulled it, you couldn't put it away until you would actually killed somebody with it. Now that does sound kind of gruesome now that I think about it, but nonetheless, that was the thing. And it actually what it did is it made you really careful when you pulled the sword, because if you were among friends, you know, what, what could you do once you pulled it? So, this is kind of what God's saying though. Once I pull that sword, it is not going back until it's done its job. It's going to stay out until everything has been accomplished. All the people will know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword from its sheath that will not return again. Therefore, groan, son of man, groan before them with broken heart and bitter grief. This is him saying to Ezekiel. Remember the Lamentations? It's time. This is it. Lament. We're, there's no more delays. There's no. This is a moment for grief. This is a moment for more. The sword is out. This is it. Why are you, When they ask you, why are you groaning? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt with fear. Every, will melt with every spirit will become faint and every mate will be wet with urine. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord says. A sword, a sword, sharpened and polished, sharpened for the slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Shall we rejoice in the scepter of my royal son? The sword despises every such stick. You're going to point to your king, you're going to point to Zedekiah, and you're going to say, he'll protect us. You think the scepter of Zedekiah is going to stand up against the sword of God, which has been sharpened and polished and prepared for slaughter? You're crazy. The sword is appointed to be polished, to be grasped with the hand. It is sharpened and polished, made ready for the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. Here's that combination of judgment and grief all at once. Yes, cry, grieve, it's my people that we're judging, but yes, that's what's happening. Therefore beat your breast, testing will surely come. And what if even the scepter, which the sword despises does not continue, declares the sovereign Lord. What if the lineage of David is actually wiped out? That's both the fear and the argument of the Israelites right now. What if Zedekiah is destroyed? What happens to that lineage of David? What happens to the covenant that we had between God and David which has protected us all this time? Son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together. Let the sword strike twice even three times. It is a sword for slaughter, a sword for great slaughter, closing in on them from every side so that hearts may melt with fear and the fallen be many. I have stationed the sword for slaughter at all their gates. Look, it is forged to strike like lightning. It is grasped for slaughter. Slash to the right, you sword, then to the left. Wherever your blade is turned, I too will strike my hands together and my wrath will subside. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is it. No more delays, no more arguments, no more objections. The sword is out, and I'm not putting it away. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take. So right on the heels of God's judgment being a sword, he talks about the sword of the king of Babylon. Again, a reminder, who is this judgment coming? Where is this judgment coming from? Who is God's sword in this judgment? Well, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Unlikely as that may seem to the Israelites... As it may seem even to Nebuchadnezzar, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is. He is the sword of God at this moment. Mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take, both starting from the same country. Make a signpost where the road branches off to the city. This is one of those moments where he tells Ezekiel to do something. I'm not entirely clear what he's doing. Is this in his model that he's already created? Is he actually going to a certain crossroads and putting up signposts? I don't know what he's doing here. But again, we we know what the point of it is because he's going to tell us. Make a signpost where the road branches off to the city. Mark out one road for the sword to come against Rabbah of the Ammonites and another against Judah and fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road at the junction of the two roads to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem. So here's what he's saying. He's saying there's going to come a moment where King Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a choice. He's going to say, do I go take care of the Ammonites who are being a little unruly, or do I go take care of Judah who's being a little unruly? And he's gonna get to this crossroads and he's gonna do all his stuff that he does to appeal to his gods. We actually know, we don't know what all of this means, like cast lots with arrows. It's probably similar to casting lots like the Israelites did, but we don't really understand exactly how that works either. Consulting his idols, but this examining the liver, interestingly enough, historically, we know this is a Babylonian thing. That they developed a science. They actually saw this as a science. I mean, whatever the term science meant to them at that day. They saw it basically as a a sure technique that, that what they would do is they would take the liver of a sacrificed animal and they would read the liver and by the amount of color on it and fat on it and things like that, it would give them answers to questions. So he's saying that Nebuchadnezzar is going to do all these things and they're all going to point to Jerusalem. Then they're going to tell him, don't go to the Ammonites, go to Jerusalem. And whose fault is that? Clearly God's fault. That's the point God's making. I'm going to make sure that when he comes to this crossroads, he's going to head towards Jerusalem.
1: Well, and that's actually interesting, too, because it kind of reminds me of a couple of other things. Well, a couple other pieces of this overall narrative that he's making sure they understand, which is that there wasn't anything magic about Jerusalem because it was where God had chosen and that's what made it special he didn't choose it because it was special and so similarly the the idea of reading the livers it's not really it's not really more nonsensical than casting lots except God had said when you cast lots I'm going to use that to speak to you and so he's reminding them again like I made it work I can make it work over here too you guys aren't so great that you came up with like the super official way to tell my will I gave you that and now I can give it to them
0: true yeah that's good, that's good. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem where he is to set up battering rams, to give the command of slaughter, to sound the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to build a ramp and to erect siege works. It will seem like a false omen to those who have sworn allegiance to him, but he will remind them of their guilt and take them captive. In other words, the Israelites will say, well, that's, that can't be from God. And God's gonna say, it doesn't matter what you say, He's going to take you captive. And guess why? Because it is from God. <laughs> Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you people have brought to mind your guilt by your open rebellion, revealing your sins in all that you do, because you have done this, you will be taken captive. You profane and wicked Israel, day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Take off the turban, remove the crown. It will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted, and the exalted will be brought low. Ruin, a ruin. I will make it a ruin. The crown, the lineage of David, it's going to be a ruin. It's going to be taken down. Uh, Was somebody else going to say something? Someone else have a thought? Okay, we'll keep going. And then it's like, then God is two things happen. He's suddenly going to start talking about judgment on the Ammonites, which is really fascinating because he just talked about how Nebuchadnezzar is going to go to Jerusalem. And I think there's two reasons for this. But I think the primary one might be that none of these prophecies are quiet, right? I mean, Ezekiel's loud, Ezekiel is public, Ezekiel is demonstrating. So when he talks about God taking a road and not going to the Ammonites, if you're an Ammonite, you might grab onto that. And you might be like, "Woohoo, we're going to be okay. So now it's like God is like, oh, but wait, while the sword is out, we're coming for you too. All right, we're going to go to Jerusalem first, but we're not stopping there. So don't, don't get too excited about that whole crossroads thing, because that's what he goes on to say. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says about the Ammonites and their insults. A sword, a sword drawn for the slaughter, polished to consume into flash like lightning. Despite false visions concerning you and lying divinations about you, it will be laid on the necks of the wicked who are to be slain, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax. Let the sword return to its sheath. So, after all that, he's going to get Jerusalem, then he's going to go over and get the Ammonites. Let the sword return to its sheath. In the place where you created, in the land of your ancestry, I will judge you. I will pour out my wrath on you and breathe out my fiery anger against you. I will deliver you into the hands of brutal men, men skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be shed in your land. You will be remembered no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken. So it's going to happen to the Ammonites. It's going to happen to the Israelites.
1: Has has Babylon pretty much conquered all the area now besides Jerusalem and the Ammonites?
0: I mean, it's an ongoing thing. Egypt is still kind of holding on to its boundaries a bit, which is why Zedekiah tries to make an alliance with yeah. that. Um, and, and it's like everything, you know, it's like, it's even like when you hear about the exile of Jerusalem and you're not going through the Old Testament, the exile sounds like a one-time event. And then you guys know we've been going through it and it's, it's a multi-year event, right? I mean, there's yeah. different phases to the exile and then there's a siege, which is actually going to last like a year. So everything is kind of takes time. It is fair to say that Nebuchadnezzar conquers pretty much all of the world he can reach, with the exception of some parts of Egypt um, and, um, to his dismay, some parts of Persia, which is where the the resistance ends up coming from. Um, but but essentially, yeah. And 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 there's other parts of the world he's completely unaware of and can't get to really. But but as far as he understands the world, he pretty much gets there. And, and yeah. And it's like everything else, some of it's, there's some rebellions, there's some tentative things, there's some things going on. But as far as historical conquerors, Nebuchadnezzar is actually one of, not that this makes it okay or good, but he's one of the more competent. Um, You know, we we see some conquerors who, they're brutal, but they're not, they just don't do a good job of holding on to their kingdom and they're not that competent, they're just kind of a powerhouse. Nebuchadnezzar appears to be a fairly smart and competent guy, um, which is why he ends up, I think, being so effective not only at conquering but kind of holding on to it, kind of like the Roman emperors where they they had a good job of not only conquering the whole world, but they managed to hold on to it with some smart decisions. And Nebuchadnezzar is kind of like that, even though it's, you know, after 50, 60 years or so, he still loses everything. All right, 22. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, will you judge her? Will you judge this city of bloodshed? Then confront her with all her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You city that brings on yourself doom by shedding blood in her midst and defies yourself by making idols. You have become guilty because of the blood you have shed and have become defiled by the idols you have made. You have brought your days to a close and the end of your years has come. Therefore, I will make you an object of scorn to the nations and a laughing stock to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far away will mock you, you infamous city full of turmoil. See how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. In you they have treated father and mother with contempt. In you they have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and desecrated my Sabbaths. In you are slanderers who are bent on shedding blood. In you are those who eat at the mountain shrines and commit lewd acts. In you are those who dishonor their father's bed. In you are those who violate women during their period when they are ceremonially and unclean. In you, one man commits a detestable offense with his neighbor's wife. Another shamefully defiles his daughter-in-law and another violates his sister, his own father's daughter. In you are people who accept bribes to shed blood. You take interest and make a profit from the poor. You extort unjust gain from your neighbors, and you have forgotten me, declares the sovereign. I will surely strike my hands together at the unjust gain you have made and the blood you have shed in your midst. Will your courage endure or your hands be strong in the day I deal with you? The Lord, I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. I will disperse you among the nations and scatter you through the countries, and I will put an end to your uncleanness. When you have been defiled in the eyes of the nations, you will know that I am the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people of Israel have become dross to me. All of them are the copper, tin, iron, and lead left inside a furnace. They are but the dross of silver. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you have all become dross, I will gather you into Jerusalem. As silver, copper, iron, lead, and tin are gathered into a furnace to be melted with a fiery blast. So I will gather you in my anger and my wrath and put you inside the city and melt you. I will gather you and I will blow on you with my fiery wrath and you will be melted inside her. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you will be melted inside her, and you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. And again the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the land, you are a land that has not been cleansed or rained on in the day of wrath. There is a conspiracy of her princes, with her like a roaring roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people, take treasures and precious things, and make many widows within her. Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach there is no difference between the unclean and the clean, and they shut their eyes to the keeping of my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Her officials are within, or her, her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make unjust gain. Her prophets whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divination. So he's going through the leadership, as he sometimes does in the prophecies, and he's saying the princes are bad, the priests are bad, the prophets are bad. And when he gets to the prophets, he specifically says what the prophets are doing is making everything that the princes and the priests are doing okay. The prophets are telling him it's all right. They're whitewashing. They're creating a wall. It's the Harkens back. And the reason I'm mentioning a wall is because he's going to mention it again in a second. I think there's a connection. He's he And he talked about this before, that the what the prophets do is they create this wall that has no substance. It's got, it's, it's untempered. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? What's that? Anyway, it's, it's um, is, is there's a word that's escaping me. What do you make a wall with?
1: Plaster.
0: Plaster. That anyway, doesn't matter. <laughs> It's a bad wall, a wall that will fall apart. And the idea of whitewashing watching it is that this all wall has gaps, has gaps and holes, and, and, and full, I'll think of it like in about half an hour, has gaps and holes, <laughs> multi-structures in it. Um, and what the prophets do is they come along while the priests and the leaders are making these terrible walls. The prophets come along and they make everybody feel okay about it. They're like, it's okay, God isn't mad about it. It's all right, no big deal, just go ahead. So they, they, they make the walls look good but they're not, they're full of holes and full of gaps. Hold that thought because he's gonna comment on that in a second. They say, this is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. God is like, this is what's happening. And the prophets are coming along and saying, that's okay, those aren't major things. It's not a big deal that you're mistreating everybody, that you're oppressing everybody, whatever. It's all right, we're gonna be okay. Thus the Lord says, but the Lord never said that. And then God says this, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. Okay, a couple of interesting things about this statement. One is he's clearly harking back to this whitewash idea. There's people who are building bad walls and there's people who are making the walls look good, but what God can't find is somebody who will actually build the wall or stand in the gap, literally go in and fill that spot So that god doesn't have to destroy everything and and one of the things that's interesting about this statement is that god is looking for that person and it harkens back to that idea that god is not eager to see everybody die what god is looking for is an excuse to not have that happen here's a second interesting thing about this statement many many weeks ago probably a couple months at this point there's a moment in jeremiah's prophecies where god says to jeremiah go through israel and find me one man (laughs) find me one righteous person And if you do that, I'll call it all off. And Jeremiah is unable to do that. He's unable to find anybody. But here's the third interesting thing about this statement. Why doesn't Jeremiah count? (laughs) Right? I mean, God says he's looking at the land and he can't find one person to stand in the gap. But isn't Jeremiah doing exactly that? Isn't Jeremiah being righteous and doing what God calls him to do? And I think the point is this. I think it's not that there isn't any righteous people in Israel, because I think there probably are other people who are listening to Jeremiah. There are the remnant who are, who are still hearing him and obeying him. Uh, there may be very few, but I think there are. But even if there aren't, we know there's Jeremiah. So why doesn't he count? Why don't those others count? I think the point is this is still all about the leadership. What God is doing is he's saying, among all the princes, among all the prophets, among all the priests, Basically, the word that God has used previously for all these people is shepherds. And what he's saying is that there may be some good sheep, but among all the shepherds, I don't have a single shepherd that will stand in the gap and do the right thing. I can't find it now. Jeremiah is, but he's not official. Jeremiah has no official position. And I think that's part of God's point, is the people that 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 will do what's right won't be given a place of authority. The people in Israel will not grant influence to the people who speak for me. They will only grant influence to the people who promote their own power. And so as I look at the whole city of Jerusalem and I look for that leader, that one leader who will stand up and stop whitewashing and stop building bad walls and stop only looking out for their own power, says I can't find anybody. There's nobody to stand in that gap. There's nobody to make that difference that I'm looking for.
1: Okay, so I I have a question and maybe I'm just like taking it too literally. But he keeps saying, you know, this will happen and then you will know that I am the Lord, but I don't know, it doesn't seem like that, like, really happens.
0: Why do they come back to Israel in 75 years?
1: Well, um, uh, Nehemiah, right? Um, brings them back but a lot of the people don't even and like to rebuild it and stuff well and I guess Ezra is getting the people ready too Yep. but like a lot of people like don't come back and
0: some don't but the point Ezra Ezra is really important Ezra is a priest and Ezra before Nehemiah Ezra comes back and starts rebuilding um, the temple and he starts rebuilding the the law he starts rebuilding the understanding of who God is so I think you can make a very clear argument that their return coincides with the people of Israel not all of them absolutely not but it coincides with a few people standing in the gap it coincides with enough people seeing yes God is God and that's the point is that they're going to recognize that they've been worshiping all these other idols trying to get them to protect them and when God steps back and stops protecting them that's when they're no longer protected and, they rea- and they're going to realize that not everybody, but Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Esther and Mordecai. And I mean, there's a list of people now as we start going through the rest of the Old Testament. These are people that do recognize, oh, God is our God. And we need to return to him, whether we're in Babylon or we're in Jerusalem. And I think some of the, some of the if-then, some of the I'm going to do this and then you'll know I'm the Lord, goes back to the idea that as long as they're still in Jerusalem, they are clinging to other definitions of who they are. We are the people where the temple is. We are the people who are a protected nation. They keep going back to this idea of being the nation of Israel, but they keep forgetting what it means to be the people of God. And by taking all that away from them, they are forced to recognize, can, can he still be our God while we're in Babylon? And the answer turns out to be yes. And so I think that's part of what he's saying. So when I've taken everything else away, you'll realize I'm all you've got and I'm still here.
1: Well, and I guess that makes sense, too, because when it's like rebuilt and when the people like come back and stuff, then it is based back on God instead of what it is based on now, essentially,
0: like the core. In fact, Nehemiah's main job is not rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah's main job is rebuilding the national identity of Israel so that it's no yeah. longer based upon them being a powerful and glorious nation. And instead, it's based upon them being the, God's people. And Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what they do together is they, they re-identify what it means to be Israel. And so although they never re-achieve, re-achieve the glorious sort of physical kingdom they had under David, that actually isn't the point. The point is they do come back to this idea of God being our God, um, at least to a degree. Now, does the cycle still continue at the time of Jesus? Somewhat, yeah, of course. Um, but, but yes, I think, I think it is true that they do, they do learn from this exile that he is their God. I think it actually does happen. All right. Uh, I was waiting for someone to stand up on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads, all they have done declares the sovereign Lord. All right, we can do 23 and 24 pretty fast. I'd like to do it and see if we can get to the end. Um, I'm just going to read through 23. It's actually very similar to a passage we've read before. And it's very similar to a passage that I don't want to comment a lot on because it's awkward enough as it is. Remember that passage we read where Spurgeon was like, no pastor should even read this out loud? (laughs) This is just as bad if not worse. I don't know why they don't make this comment about this passage. But it's also essentially the same thing. It's showing the disgusting nature and level of their unfaithfulness to God. All right. I will only make one comment as I go through it, and that's to explain the names he's going to give us in a second. Other than that, I'm pretty much going to read it straight through. You'll all get the point. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, there were two women, daughters of the same mother. They became prostitutes in Egypt, engaging in prostitution from their youth. In that land, their breasts were fondled and their virgin bosoms caressed. The older was named Ohola. Ohola means her own tabernacle. And as we're going to be told... Ohola is Samaria, and Samaria is Israel. Remember, that's another name for northern Israel. So, we're going to have Israel and Judah described here. And Israel, their name is her own tabernacle. And I think the idea of calling her her own tabernacle is this was led, this was the first big sin of Israel. This was led to their, this is what led to their lack of unity with Judah and Jerusalem. This was what uh, Jeroboam did that became kind of the mark of evil for the rest of the kings. And that's that they, began to make their own tabernacle. They refused to go back to Jerusalem, but instead they created their own little worshiping places. And at first they were worshiping the true God in them, but eventually they became places of idol worship. But it was this that led to their lack of unity. It was this that led to them to ultimately split with Judah. And so he calls them her own tabernacle. So the older one was named Ohola, and her sister was named Oholibah. Now Oholibah means the tabernacle is in her. And Jerusalem indeed, has the temple in her, but I think by calling her Oholibah, he's attacking their point of pride. They think because the temple's in her, it proves that they're better than Israel, and that's why they survived longer, and that therefore they don't deserve to be judged. And what God is going to point out is that Oholibah is actually worse than Ohola because they have the example of Samaria that they could have looked to and learned from, and instead of learning from it, they just go worse. They like double down on everything that Israel did. Now, let me just read it. They were mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. Ohola is Samaria and Oholibah is Jerusalem. I love that, let's give them names and then let's take the mystery out by telling you who they really are anyway. But here we go. Ohola engaged in prostitution while she was still mine and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in blue, governors and commanders, all of them handsome young men and mounted horsemen. She gave herself as a prostitute to the elite of the Assyrians and defiled herself with all the idols of everyone she lusted after. She did not give up the prostitution she began in Egypt when, during her youth, men slept with her, caressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their lust on her. Therefore, I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, the Assyrians, for whom she lusted. They stripped her naked, took away her sons and daughters, and killed her with the sword. She became a byword among women, and her punishment was inflicted on her. Her sister, Oholibas, saw this. Yet in her lust and prostitution, she was more depraved than her sister. She too lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors in full dress, mounted horsemen, all handsome young men. I saw that she too defiled herself. Both of them went the same way, but she carried her prostitution still further. She saw men portrayed on a wall, figures of Chaldeans portrayed in red with belts around their waists and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them looked like Babylonian chariot officers, natives of Chaldea. And as soon as she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her, to the bed of love, and in their lust they defiled her. And after she had been defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. When she carried on her prostitution openly and exposed her naked body, I turned away from her in disgust, just as I had turned away from her sister. Yet she became more and more promiscuous as she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt, and there she lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose emission was like that of horses. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth. When in Egypt, your bosom was caressed and your young breast fondled. Therefore, O holy Ba, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will stir up your lovers against you, those who turned, you turned away from in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side. The Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, the men of Pekot and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, handsome young men, all of them governors and commanders, chariot officers and men of high rank, all mounted on horses. They will come against you with weapons, chariots and wagons, and with a throng of people. They will take up positions against you on every side with large and small shields and with helmets. I will turn you over them, over to them for punishment and they will punish you according to their standards. I will direct my jealous anger against you and they will deal with you in fury. They will cut off your noses and your ears and those of you who are left will fall by the sword. They will take away your sons and daughters and those of you who are left will be consumed by fire. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry. So I will put a stop to the lewdness and the prostitution you began in Egypt You will not look on these things with longing or remember Egypt anymore. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am about to deliver you into the hands of those you hate, to those you turned away from in disgust. They will deal with you in hatred and take away everything you have worked for. They will leave you stark naked and the shame of your prostitution will be exposed. Your lewdness and promiscuity have brought this on you because you lusted after the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister so I will put her cup into your hand. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister, Samaria. You will drink it and drain it and chew on its pieces and you will tear your breasts. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Since you have forgotten me and turned your back on me, you must bear the consequence of your lewdness and prostitution. The Lord said to me, son of man, will you judge Ohola and Oholibah? Then confront them with their detestable practices, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They committed adultery with their idols. They even sacrificed their children, whom they bore to me, as food for them. They also have done this to me. At that same time, they defiled my sanctuary. They desecrated my Sabbaths. On the very day they sacrificed their children to their idols, they entered my sanctuary and desecrated it. This is what they did in my house. They even sent messengers for men who came from far away, and when they arrived you bathed yourself for them, applied eye makeup, and put on your jewelry. You sat on an elegant couch with a table spread before it, on which you had placed the incense and olive oil that belonged to me. The noise of a carefree crowd was around her. Drunkards were brought from the desert along with men from the rabble, and they put bracelets on the wrists of the women and her sister and beautiful crowns on their heads. And then I said about the one worn out by adultery, now let them use her as a prostitute for that is all she is. And they slept with her, as men sleep with the prostitutes, so they slept with these lewd women, Ohola and Oholibah. But righteous judges will sentence them to the punishment of women who commit adultery and shed blood, because they are adulterous and blood is on their hands. This is what the sovereign Lord says, bring a mob against them and give them over to terror and plunder. The mob will stone them and cut them down with their swords. They will kill their sons and daughters. So I will put an end to lewdness in the land, that all women may take warning and not imitate you you will suffer the penalty for your lewdness and bear the consequences of your sins of idolatry. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. So just another way of describing the judgment and the reason for it. We have three short passages we'll read and then we'll be done. These all say the same thing. This is a landmark moment. It says, Second Kings chapter 24, verses 20 through 25. And this is in 588 BC. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it, and the city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Jeremiah 52, verses three through five, says this. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it, and the city was kept under siege until the 11th year of king Zedekiah. This date and this event it's recorded in four different places here in scripture, and it's because it's an it's a, it's a really iconic moment for the Israelites. It's like 9/11 for us. This is a date that they know. That's why we even have the exact date to this day. It's a date, it's a time, it's a moment. It is, the, it is the beginning of the destruction of the temple. Even though it's a siege that lasts for a whole year, this is it. This is when the sword is drawn and it's not put away until it's all done. Jeremiah 38 says it again. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And then finally, Ezekiel 24, verses 1 through 14. In the ninth year, in the 10th month, on the 10th day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Tell this rebellious people a parable and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Put on a cooking pot, put it on and pour water into it. Put in the pieces of meat, all the choice pieces, the leg and the shoulder. Fill it with the best of these bones. Take the pick of the flock. Pile wood beneath it for the bones. Bring it to a boil and cook the bones in it. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. So you can imagine Ezekiel not only talking about this, but actually doing this. Knowing how Ezekiel works, I imagine he actually goes out in the middle of everything and starts cooking in a pot. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the city of bloodshed, to the pot now encrusted whose deposit will not go away. Take the meat out piece by piece in whatever order it comes. For the blood she shed is in her midst. She poured it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground where the dust would cover it. To stir up wrath and take revenge, I put her blood on the bare rock so that it would not be covered. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the city of bloodshed. I too will pile the wood high. So heap on the wood and kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mixing in the spices and let the bones be charred. Then set the empty pot on the coals till it becomes hot and its copper glows so that its impurities may be melted and its deposit burned away. It has frustrated all efforts. Its heavy deposit has not been removed, not even by fire. Now your impurity is lewdness because I tried to cleanse you, but you would not be cleansed from your impurity. You will not be clean again until my wrath against you has subsided. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come for me to act. I will not hold back. I will not have pity, nor will I relent. You will be judged according to your conduct and your actions, declares the sovereign Lord. So this is it. This is kind of, I mean, we still have the destruction of the temple to come in about a year, but this is kind of what everything's been talking about. This is the judgment, my cat. This is the judgment that, that God's been leading up to that Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem. He lays the city to siege. It's going to take about a year, mostly because Nebuchadnezzar is going to be busy conquering other people, and he's not really worried about them once he's got them under siege. But eventually he's going to go in, he's going to destroy the temple entirely. And God is saying, we're here. It's happened. Here's what it's all been about. All the arguments are over. All the objections are over. All the prophets that have been preaching that it's going to be okay. This is it. We're here. It's all, you can argue whatever you want. We're here and this is happening. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.